I can tell you one of the biggest differentiators, Canada does business based on relationships, largely in the U.S. does it based on transactional value. For example, if something goes wrong, and invariably it does, there is way less mercy in the United States. Whereas Canadians, we tend to say, look, we've got a relationship. They figured out they made the mistake. Let's carry on. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited today because we have the John Ruffalo joining us today on the Afternoon Tea Podcast. And in fact, this is episode 77, which I'm sure is a lucky number somewhere, if not just for me. Um, John, let me just set this up before we get into the nitty gritty, if you please. Today, we have the honor of interviewing John Ruffalo, a titan of the Canadian business landscape. John is the founder and managing partner at Mavericks Private Equity, as well as the former CEO of Auris Ventures, one of the largest and most active venture capital firms in Canada. Under his leadership, Amherst Ventures invested in several successful Canadian startups, including Shopify, Xanadu, Jobber, Hootsuite, Desire to Learn, Hopper, League, and Wattpad. John also co-founded the Council of Canadian Innovators with John Jim Vasily, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping high-growth Canadian technology firms scale globally. As an active board member, John works with many leading innovative organizations, including AI Partnerships Corps, Engineering.com, Either Capital, and 111. John is equally recognized for his involvement in the nonprofit sector, including serving as a member of the boards of the David Suzuki Foundation, the CIBC Foundation, and the Royal Ontario Museum, to name a few. John, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, this is exciting. This is exciting. So let's just go right into the brass tacks. Can you tell me the founding story of Maverick's private equity, please? Sure. Well, um, uh, let me tell you the founding story of the name, because the name means something. So okay. uh, I uh, I spent eight years at at Omer's had a an absolute blast there, uh-huh. and I'll explain the strategic reason of why Mavericks exists in a moment. But uh, when when I had announced that I was leaving, but I didn't announce that I was uh, building Mavericks just yet because I I needed to wait to leave to start raising the the the, the capital. Uh-huh. Um, about in the first five calls, I got hundreds of calls that day, but in the first five, about three of them said, hey, um, how long were you over at Omer's? And by the third person who said, I go, wait a minute, why are you asking this question? And they said, oh, no, no, uh, uh, no, no reason other than uh, how long was the time? I go, eight years? And they said, oh, I'm just surprised you were there that long. And I said, why do you say that? They go, well, you're a maverick. And it's tough as a maverick to be in a large organization. Uh-huh. So by the time the third person said it, I said, well, there you go. There's the name of the firm. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Uh, due to uh, trademark infringements, et cetera, because Maverick is a, is a used name, Mavericks was not. So, uh-huh. And then we thought, well, we're investing in Mavericks uh-huh. uh, and hence the name. And the real uh, opportunity was when I – first left Deloitte, a job that I absolutely loved uh-huh. and felt that I had a duty to go to Omer's, there was a three-part plan. And I will overly simplify it. Uh-huh. Uh, how do you build companies first to get from zero to 10 million in revenue was one strategy. 
10 to 100 million and 100 million plus. And by the time that I had left Omer's, I felt that I had accomplished building the first two components. And while at Omer's, I was building the third, which was uh. Omer's growth equity. And I decided, I think the opportunity was so great that why not build it under your own business? Mm -hmm. And because I was there for the eight years, it was an amazing training ground to build a type of organization firm that I really wanted to be a part of and and take it from there. So that was really how it all uh, uh, transpired. Well, that is super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Well, what type of company? I'm assuming these must be later stage companies then with the, with the PE side. Yeah, What's the sort so, of company you would normally look at? So, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a profile of our first one, for example, and it's a it's a good indicator of the of the companies that we're generally looking at. They were approximately a hundred million dollars in revenue, already profitable, and they were already scaling and doing unbelievable. By the way, never sought a dollar of capital, so it was all done on one customer at a time. Mm -hmm. But they were already emerging as one of the leading social media influencer uh, organizations in the world. The, the, the name is Viral Nation. <laughs> and when we saw this, we really thought that the the advertising dollars were going to continue to move to influencer marketing. And this right. was a huge area. And we thought that with some dollars, um, some some sophistication around scaling across global borders, organization design, governance, et cetera. We could harness the amazing work that these two founders have done and really scale it at a level uh, that they they wouldn't uh, have been able to do at least in the same time frame on their own. And you know we we see this business becoming a billion dollar business. And here is the key thing. We love these businesses that we can build for scalability that stay in Canada, but compete globally, but are a leader in their particular space. Uh. And, you know, the best way to think about this, and it really started back in 2013 when, uh, you know, when we had back, back Shopify was, yeah. how do we help build global players that remain in Canada. We're not the entrepreneurs. They're building it. But okay. how can we be a significant supporting player? So what Mavericks is really doing is really trying to help entrepreneurs get there. And we don't take any control. We'll take a significant minority position. Uh -huh. A multitude of industries, and there's five of them that we particularly like, but it's a multitude. But the key secret sauce is we believe that the key to at least organic growth is uh, underpinned by adopting technology. So you don't have to be a technology business yeah. per se, but at the end of the day, all businesses are going to become technology businesses or they will be out of business. And we're trying to attract those enlightened CEOs and founders that already know that. But they need someone who not only understands how to scale global businesses, but how to leverage technologies in uh, enabling that scaling to be you know cheaper, bad, better, faster, with greater customer insights. And our team has been built with both capabilities in mind. 
Well, that's super interesting. Well, when you when you take a, a position or an investment in a company, do you do it like you know traditionally you'd be with you know say it would be like across seven different firms uh, would would yeah. make an investment do, party because it's later I stage. Yeah, you know, as I was gonna say, do you just take the single the single route usually yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I did the same thing. If you watch my pattern, even at uh, Omer's Ventures, I did it. I refuse all party rounds. Huh. The problem with a party round is that no one's has a real significant invested interest. Uh, and so if something goes wrong, and it goes wrong 99% of the time, everybody looks at each other and Burn. thinks the other person's going to fix it. So I believe you need a, a few committed investors. Now, what my ideal scenario is, is that when we come in, we are prepared to go it alone. And, and, and that's our ethos. We would go alone, no problem. But we also... Uh, like partnering if the other partner uh, can add value that we couldn't add. So again, I'll oh. use Viral Nation as an example. We co-invested with Eldridge, a leading firm right. in in United States that also happens to have a lot of media assets, which will become customers of Viral Nation. Right. They have advantages that we possibly couldn't duplicate, but since Viral Nation is based in Canada and it's largely scaling here and its head office is here and all the executives here, they need our help as well. So having multiple good minds at the table is great for the company, but it doesn't mean you need ten. And frankly, in my investing history, my kind of rule of thumb was around two or three. Mm-hmm. And then when you get beyond that, you know, and, and, and that doesn't include if angels come in, et cetera, but I'm talking major investors. It does start to get a little complicated and it becomes difficult for the founders to really, you know, they want to work with who's on their board and their investors. If there's a multitude of folks, they're spending all of their time worrying about investors. They shouldn't worry about us. They should worry about customers. That's mm. their job. Well, I'm just—I mean, it's interesting what you're saying, and I, I think that's a really strong position. I mean, if you have the capital and you have the 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 the, the fortitude and belief in that company, you know, taking a taking, you know, hey, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to lead and be the only leaders, basically. But I mean, I was just wondering when you mentioned that, how often will someone love a company but hate the other co-investors and not want to take part in that? Did you did you ever come across that? Oh, yeah, it happens. Oh, yes, it happens very very often. So, in in. I don't, and this is very acute in venture investing where there's there's really a lot of co-opetition going on. One of the jobs as a VC is to build relationships with other VCs. And you can't build a relationship with a hundred of them. So you really start to try to find those that have similar ethos to you so that when you're on the board, you know, you are you, you already know that you're philosophically aligned. Yeah. Where problems do occur, even if you're philosophically aligned, is when you come in, say, at a seed or series A, and then there is an A, B, C, D round. And, you know, the company is doing well, but what happens is people have come at different values. And this is why I kept on complaining about the egregious values of 2019 to 2021. It's going to cause problems for the companies because because of an investor says, I'm going to make sure I get a 3x return Mm -hmm. on my investment. And that 3x 
translates into a $20 billion exit or whatever the number is. And you know that the biggest exit in that industry historically has been a $1 billion company. You know that's a problem. But if sure. you're sitting at an entry point of, say, 50 million bucks, you're going to say sell, sell, sell. So you've got to be very careful of the misalignment of economic interest, and it's tricky. But when you come in at late stage, you know, it's a little different because we're all the big dollars are all kind of coming in at the same time. Ugh. And sometimes there is a bunch of angels that have been there for a long time. And what we'll do is say, hey, why don't we clean it up and we'll do some secondaries, get them their return, get them out. They're happy, and uh -huh. now we have a bigger position in the company. When, when you're look when you're looking at uh, a company, and this is later stage, so it's a, it's a very different game than the early stage, obviously. Yeah, I mean, what is it you're looking at the cap table? You're probably looking at the financials. What 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 what's what's the most important thing that you're looking at? That that's like so, this is a, a go or no go, basically. Yeah. So there, there's basically, I mean, detailed, but it's basically comes down to three things. Mm -hmm. It's the the people, um, the the market, and the execution. Yeah. So on the people side, the earlier you go, the more important the people side is going to go because at the other end, there's not that much really that's that you can really diligence. But people always remember uh, 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 the diligence around there represents to me always at least 50% of solving whether you want to invest in the business. When it's early stage, it's 70, 80% of the answer. So what you really have to do is really understand the motivations, uh, the alignments, their history, how they treat people, how they treat customers. It's the actual hardest thing to diligence. And this is when, you know, and you saw a lot of the American firms come up here in Canada give big dollars where we would look at it and go, oh my God, uh, you know, coming into a market when you don't know somebody and their capabilities is a is a massive risk. And a lot of them, they're bad people, but they perhaps weren't able to scale the business because they didn't have the requisite experience. But people is number one. Right. Number two is what is the problem that you're really trying to solve how big is that problem and is the solution to that problem um is that the right solution and not be the perfect solution the solution is evolved and are you going to address that solution by going deeper vertically are you going horizontally with complementary ideas but it's really the macro solution from a strategic perspective to that problem. And this is really where you really try to figure out uh, you know, their ability to capture a market and will that number just be big enough in order to get the requisite returns. And there again, it's a lot of research on that and a lot of, uh, uh, I'd say it's more of the product and technical evaluation of the actual product. The third part is and this becomes more important in late stage than in this early stage. It's really around the financial diligence and and understanding the unit economics, the pricing. Um, you know, is, is this going to 
uh, you know, ultimately generate positive EBITDA because, again, yeah. this multiple of revenue nonsense where people weren't looking at the quality of revenues have led people to just blow hundreds of billions of dollars in wastage. It's because they weren't looking at the ultimate profitability. But uh, the problem on the early stage side is there's very little you can diligence on that. You have to guess whether at least they can take it to 10 million or 100 million, but you're not really thinking, are they going to take it to the billions? But for us, we already have so many proof points because if we're coming in at 100, then we really try to look at, okay, uh, can this business truly make it to the billion? Could they, you know, what do their financial metrics look like, et cetera? And that is the financial due diligence. But that's the final piece. And frankly, that's the easiest piece right. of the entire exercise. Well, that's interesting. Well, you know, in the, in the, in the, again, the later stage funding side of things, it must be a very good market for you right now, being the sense, I guess, that, um, it's a popular market. Yeah. I mean, things are depressed right now in terms of valuation. I had to wait. Yeah, but I had to wait, right? And if, uh. I don't know if you had read a lot of my uh, writings. I made it very, very public. So so here's a little factoid for you. Uh -huh. uh, so when I left Omer's, I wrote a white paper on uh -huh. January the 7th, 2019. So it was a week after it. And I had my whole thesis of what Maverick, oh, time was Maverick. Uh, before I spoke to my lawyers, but uh, uh, I had the thesis, but I had a time frame to raise. I was I spent a lot of time looking at the market, demographics, et cetera. I'm a, I'm a disciple of this author named Peter Zion, who right. wrote The Accidental Superpower, and I was convinced that in the latter half of 2020, the world, from a financial perspective, was going to implode, and I needed the fundraise both just before that mm -hmm. and then hold on to the money for about a year and then start uh, making my investment. It almost worked except for a few things got in my way. I had a false start with a previous lead investor and I replaced that. Mm -hmm. uh, COVID hit, uh, which wasn't in my white paper plan and neither <laughs> was getting run over by a tractor trailer in my plans. And so instead of closing it in the, you know, by Q2 of 2020, we did close it by Q1 of 2021. And then with the exception of two investments that we made, we did hold uh, still for 18 months. And I got to tell you, being contrarian and holding to your principle, right. it sounds great and sexy. And we turned out to, to nailed it. But let me tell you how hard it is to do it, mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, the blowback that you get by holding steady, where people perhaps were thinking, "Oh my God, what are these guys doing?" Well, we were extremely busy, but we were deciding proactively, <laughs> "No, not now." So when is the now? The now uh, is now, and we're uh -huh. you're going to see some stuff happen this year that we're pretty excited about. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, so many companies that, you know, thought maybe they'd IPO at like D or E, but now D and E is a necessary fund to rise just to to, to extend for when times get better for the IPO. So, yeah, no, I think the timing just makes yeah, so much yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and so many companies went public way too early <laughs> because they took advantage of a foolish market. And now all those same companies are all with, with, with 
two exceptions, are all trading below their IPO value at numbers that are a fraction of what they would have been valued on a private uh, perspective. So it's it's really come back to bite them pretty hard. Yeah, no, the, the, it's a it's a weird market right now. But if you got the capital on hand and you've got your powder dry, it's uh, it it's can a be great, it can be a, a beautiful great, place. <laughs> a great mar- It's a great market for an entrepreneur mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm. got a great balance sheet mm-hmm. and you know is looking at this to grab market share or buy competitors. It's yeah, you get these once a decade. This mm-hmm. is the time, but it's scary. It's very oh. scary because you can't make a mistake either. No, very much so, very much so. Well, you know, I was I was really lucky because I got to meet um, at I was at one of the C one hundred events uh, last month uh, down down in uh, California. And I got to meet Benjamin mm-hmm. Bergen uh, from the uh, Council of Canadian Innovators that you 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 yes. were founder of, and he's a smart guy. He's flamboyant. He is interesting. I enjoyed debating him because he is made for debates. But tell yep. me, what was the purpose that you found at the Council of Canadian Innovators, and uh, what's what's the mission here? Well, the mission is what I had described. The mission of Mavericks is the mission of CCI. Mm-hmm. And the council was created by Jim Balsillie and I back in October 2015. It was following an Ulmer's Ventures uh, uh, investor roundtable with our CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the concern that we had was, you know, this is now would have been, we would have invested two years prior into Shopify and you could see the rocket ship uh-huh. going and we asked ourselves the question how do you like it's spectacular but but how do you do this 20 more times and the problem was that we saw so many of the Canadian companies being outgunned by in particular US based companies that were leveraging uh government in a way to make it very, very difficult to compete. And in a digital-based world, the the same rules, you know, no longer apply in terms of, you know, physical property plan equipment, physical supply chains. And it's instead uh, rules based on ink from a pen that people write that give people the right to earn economic rents from somebody else and that construct is very very different and we saw the americans you know do this uh, and and the big ones the fangs in particular were exceptional at it and not only were they exceptional at it but they were actually doing it in our backyard and we were looking horrified and it was really jim's idea and jim found out the hard way you know, in those BlackBerry days, and Jim said, I said to Jim, so Jim does a speech, and he basically lays out what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Jim kneels, and all of us, it was about 30 CEOs in the room, and all of us had our jaws dropped, and I would say we came out quite depressed. I, I was, and we go into some cocktails, and I said, Jim, that was incredible but you got me so depressed what do we do and he's like well i was already thinking about it do we create a lobby group whereby instead of each of the technology companies having their own gr function why don't we uh create an organization and in essence have them outsource 
their GR function to a single organization, they all leverage one another and we find issues that are common amongst all the technology companies. And and today it is it is not only the leading organization from a lobbying perspective or public policy perspective, uh, from a technology perspective, is really the only one. And yeah. it's the only one that's regarded with uh credibility because we're only doing one thing and it's partnering with the government. It's not chastising them. It's not embarrassing them. It's, <laughs> hey, we're here to help. This is what they need. Can you help us deliver it? And we've become a very trusted uh, source of not only information, but solutions. And I think, you know, very recently when the whole Silicon Valley bank fiasco happened, right. we were already advising uh, the deputy premier's office and department of finance of exactly what to do because it was terrifying for everybody involved oh, yeah. and they needed someone who can confidentially give them the data and the advice because it would have taken them too long and this is what people don't get you know they have this it's us versus the government we are all the government and you could either choose to moan about it or you can work together and it's we've chosen the latter. Well, what, one thing I like about the model as well and why I think it's really important is, I mean, we have groups out here, like I'm in Vancouver, so we have like BC Tech Association and all that. But at right. the end of the day, they are beholden to the government because the government's paying their fees. Right. So it's a very different angle, you know? So Very different. Yeah. So this is, this is a lot more ability to be constructive, I think, because you're not yes. afraid of losing budget. And that's important. No, no. It's one hundred percent funded by the, the the company members, and the member of the company is the CEO. Right. Oh, I think that's really great. Well, tell me tell me about. I mean, you also co-founded and the chair of the AI Partnership Corps. I mean, we're hearing yes. about AI here, left, right, and center these days. Um, tell me what about the group's mission and goals? Yeah, I mean, this is just. Uh, yeah, I, I I am the chair and uh, one of the co-founders, but it's driven. Uh, by a good friend of mine who was the uh, CEO of the Ontario Centers of Excellence. Biff. And what he observed in in, uh, in in his travels was, you know, AI obviously is a hot buzzword, but what was happening in the marketplace was lots of companies were looking, and I'd say for AI consulting services. And... Uh, and they really didn't want to go to um, the large consulting firms for it. They wanted more of a boutique feel. But the problem with the boutiques is that they were quite a boutique. And these typical boutiques had a combination of software and services. And what we were really doing is looking up and saying, okay, you know what? Is there a way to roll up those boutiques in a way to provide... Uh, a lot of the SMBs that are looking for AI services in a far more cost-effective way, and that's what we're doing right now. So we're just we're really uh, at the early stages of it, and I think there's going to be massive consolidation in the right. space as the AI space, um, you know, starts to mature. And I think people are now truly seeing the application level of AI, right. which you know, we it was a great buzzword for the last, you know, frankly, thirty years. Yes. But now, with the computing power the way it is, uh, and the 
the, the, the cheap costs of processing, I think people are now, you know, looking at open AI and sure. start to go, wow. Uh, now I'm starting to really imagine what my business might be able to look like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was. I'm, I'm old enough to say that I saw Matthew Broderick in War Games in the theater. So, uh, oh, yeah. you know, definitely <laughs> the, the AI concept has been around a long time. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's, long time. The, the speed of it is just is just purely shocking. And also, I mean, you've got this new, you know, the Llama, um, you know, uh, library uh, uh, from, uh, you know, that sounds like it just went public in the sense of that uh, now you can actually have the the full models on your own computer, which means they the guide or the uh, the guardrails are off. It, there's there's a stuff that uh, you know is is fascinating and kind of terrifying at the same time, but we'll we'll see how that plays out. And uh, Canada yeah. obviously is 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 a leader in this in terms of the you know the true science and uh, you know being being a, you're you're based in Toronto obviously, so the University yes. of Toronto being a king king kingmaker in terms of the technology that must be a really good place to get the pulse on it. Yeah, at least from a uh, an educational resource perspective, you know. With the exception of one company in Canada, uh, at the foundational level, most of them are in the United States. Uh, the mm -hmm. only one here being Cohere, which is in both Toronto and San Francisco. Um, so that foundational level is is uh, right now what's getting extremely hot. The application level, though, that sits on top of the engine. Mm -hmm. This is where I think Canada is going to have a lot of interesting players where they're really servicing the ultimate end user um, and uh, they'll be leveraging off not only one engine, but maybe, you know, all the significant engines that end up becoming the, uh, the de facto standards. Oh, for sure. I mean, some my company TTT Studios, we make we make software for for clients all over the place. And right now, we're looking at doing a lot of the bolt end front ends because at the end of the day, ChatGTP four three whatever you want to say, it's just an API. Like you can it build right. anything on it. Correct. You, know? you just have to build right. trust it, trust in it. <laughs> That's the scary correct, thing. correct. And <laughs> and have have the, your APIs open enough that it doesn't matter who the engine is underneath, yeah. and it's going to end up become a commoditization play on the engine underneath. Um, but I think, you know, just like everything else on the engine front, you know, you might end up with a big three that soak mm -hmm. up, you know, 80 plus percent of all of the business. And then, you know, there's a millions of applications on top of those engines. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm already looking at like Google, you know, Microsoft, obviously they, they launched their whole studio suite yeah. uh, and then Google yeah. just did the same. And it's basically parody at the end of the day you of know you course. want to say they're catching AI up has catching an advantage. no it's yeah it's, it's complete parody but but my concern is this now does that like is that risk for slack because in order for you to have a good business application and knowledge you have to have centralized you know all of your business information has to be centralized in their emails and all that so you now you know to, to properly leverage that you have to have your own communication internal communication platform yeah. like a slack because that's going to strengthen everything I think there is going to be a huge consolidation among the big three, big two. Um, and then where do we go from there? Yeah. That might be interesting because that centralization yeah, yeah. is required. Well, that's why there, you know, the argument is the, the most effective uh, engine will be the Chinese engine because the, the data theoretically is in one repository. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the theory will go. But what will ultimately matter? It's it's you know it's not too different 
say in the internet days, everybody talked about the infrastructure layer, right? So mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember, you know, the biggest thing was, you know, the you know the fiber companies and where is all the pipe being laid? And mm-hmm. we had uh, 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 not only telecom companies, but we had CLEX and all of the value was there mm-hmm. until overcapacity was built. And then ended up, and then we had all of the um, the the gateways to get on to the you know the the ISPs to get onto right. the networks, and that became you know the AOLs of or uh, you know of the world became the value, but then that was temporary as well because that those two commoditized. But what didn't commoditize? It was the app layer on top. <laughs> Google became Google, Apple, all of these companies. The, the fangs today rode all of that infrastructure being built and all of the economics have been squeezed out to that upper layer of application layer. Uh-huh. Will the same thing happen? I don't know, but it's interesting using history what ultimately happened. But but it's also important to to, to really reflect on the, the reason why all that application layer was, was possible is because those pipes became just pipes and nothing more than just pipes, which Correct. is comparatively important. This is what I was advising. So I was an advisor to one of the large telcos, and I said, guys, if you don't build in your application layer, you will just end up being a big, dumb, fat pipe. Mm-hmm. Guess what? They're big, dumb, fat pipes, and that's exactly what it is. And then you get an infrastructure-level return mm-hmm. on your infrastructure investment, and that's it, and you're just basically a utility. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Some of the, you know, the U.S. AT&T has tried to reverse that with adding, you know, lots of applications, media content, but it's really hard to do it after the fact like that. Oh, yeah. The expectation of the, the, the market expectation is already there. So, yeah. Well, yeah. You know what, let's get into this. I'm, I, I don't know if you were the founder of Omers, so please correct me if you if you were. Uh, but can you not tell me Omers, the... not of Omers, but Omers Ventures, yes. Omers Ventures. Perfect. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. yeah, so yeah, tell, yeah. Tell yes. me the founding story then, please. Yeah, it's a bit of a convoluted story, but essentially, so here I am, I'm at Deloitte, I'm working with uh, uh, the federal government to try to help solve this lack of venture capital financing. There was no VCs around. There was no capital. It was it was horrible. Really, it bottomed out in 2005 and never resurrected. And I was working on a number of policies um, and one of them was to force pension funds to allocate a 1% pension tax to go into innovation, which was one of the many ideas that was floating around. But I was attacking the pension funds for their inability to see uh, where innovation was going. And there was one pension fund that reached out to me, uh, which was Omer's, who started asking me, you know, questions and from an advisor perspective, which I was happy to provide, and then it quickly turned into, well, we don't want you to advise us. We want you to build it for us. And I'm like, well, why me? He says, well, you know, you think you're so smart. You've been attacking us for 18 months. You think uh, you can do it? Go ahead and do it yourself. Good luck. I was like, well, you know, I like to criticize. They don't like to move. Uh, so, and the CEO of Omers at the time was somebody who had worked with me 20 years prior. We had, we had a, uh, a, a relationship and he just knew that 
that I, I really wanted to solve the problem. Now, what they had done prior to me getting there, it was actually a joint venture between Omers and a Dutch-based pension fund called right. APB. Mm-hmm. And it was the largest pension fund in in the Netherlands. And they were going to go it together. And a name was already attached to it. It was called INCEF, standing for Investing in the Knowledge Economy of the Future or something. Uh, something like that. And so so what they said is they signed an MOU on what this thing would look like, but with no details. They asked me to execute it. So I eventually joined Omers to do that. And I'd say by the two weeks in, I realized it was a disaster and it was (laughs) going to be a horrible disaster uh, if it wasn't significantly changed. And three months later, with the support of the Omer CEO, I uh, pulled the plug on the MOU and created Omer's Ventures, and we went yeah. it alone. And it was supposed to have originally been a $90 million from us and $90 million from them, uh, JV, but uh, Omer's... Uh, decided just to give me the $180 million Canadian at the time. And at the time I came in, it was viewed as this astronomical amount of money that some boneheaded accountant was coming in to solve this problem and good luck. And boy, did I ever come in uh, as unwelcome as you could imagine. Uh, in not unwelcomed by the entrepreneurs. They were thrilled out of their minds. I was unwelcomed by um, the other venture capitalists, but which is not surprising. But what was surprising to me, I was very unwelcomed by the rest of Omers. And uh, they were the executive team of Omers round, you know, soundly said no to doing this because it was a huge mistake Um, and they were using the same backwards looking thinking and it was the CEO of Omers who vetoed it and said I don't care but I didn't know that until weeks after I came and uh, you know even though I knew this was a a long term horizon I was essentially told I had three years to show whether this was a stupid idea or not. Otherwise, we'll pull the plug. And when I designed it, it was designed as a classic GPLP structure that you would see with any third party. And it was designed with full rip cords to rip it apart instantaneously if someone decided to put the stroke of a pen to change it. So the pressure was on at like almost from day one. And, and if it wasn't for the CEO of Omers for those first three years, the same one who had hired me, it would have been pulled because he's, he was going to retire three years later. So that's why I knew I had only a three-year time frame to show, can this thing here make money or not? That's that's super. I mean, he had, he got us Maverick, as you were saying, which 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 makes which makes a lot of yep. sense. I guess you're, I mean, Typically, the, you know, these funds are funding like infrastructure projects or buildings or, or these sort of things. Right. So did you feel like you had to get a quick win right away just yes. to show them? And what was that quick win? Well, what had happened was at the time, remember when I said 
I focus first on, you know, how do you get companies from zero to 10? So my very first investment was Wave Accounting, uh, which ended up being, at least on the first check, 100x return on, mm. on the capital. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, over a course of eight, eight years. But um, uh, but I did a, a several, call it the zero to tens, and started feeling the pressure, you know, breathing on the back of my neck. I can't recall the time frame, but let's just say maybe around mid-2012 or thereabouts, <laughs> and started to say, okay, guys, why we need to what flat what we call the J curve, which basically is there's a long lead cycle before you start generating returns. So invest in companies that are a little bit more mature. So call it the Series B. So mm -hmm. they're already at ten million dollars plus, trying to get to the hundred million. And I did that, and we did the first one. It was Hootsuite, yeah. and Hootsuite, I, I want to say, was it went from seven to about thirteen million, and you could see it was ready to go. That was the first one, and when the market saw that one, we put a twenty million dollar check there. When twenty million actually meant something back in twenty twelve, and then when did uh, I can't remember the exact order, but did Hootsuite, Wattpad, Desire to Learn, and then Shopify. Basically, you know, and there's months in between, of course, but kind of all in a row. Yeah. And during those four later stage ones, we also did some of those seeds, et cetera, around it. And what it did, it muted the impact and it started to show that the ability to make money quicker was very possible. And what happened, which was a little surprising to me, those late stage ones started disproportionately outperforming mm. and Shopify of course was <laughs> the big one. And in Shopify's case, it was not only the biggest check at the time that we had issued it was the biggest financing in Canadian history at the time. Yeah. And it was a hundred million dollar financing again, when a hundred million actually meant something Perfect. and we took half of it and, uh, I breached uh, I can say this now. I breached all of the uh, uh, the uh, uh, requirements around uh, our thresholds of investing. I just thought that this was the most incredible investment. So I, I contacted our CEO again, and I just said, hey, I hope you don't get mad at me, but I think I found the best deal I've ever seen. And I sort of breached all of our pension authorizations and blah, blah, blah. And he just said, don't worry, I got you. And it was amazing. And we did it. And 20 months later, Shopify goes public. And that was really the defining moment of, holy moly, not only could you make a decent return, you can make billions and billions. And that was the inflection point of maybe venture was not such a stupid idea after all. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, we're we're talking about so many, you know, huge companies that are, you know, Canadian legendary companies. We'll even say that at Almer's backed. I mean, what made it so successful? Was it was it like a really good team that you had? Was it your own eye? Like, what what did you feel was the reason why you you were able to uh, recognize so many of these strong companies? Well, 
at the very beginning, it was scarcity, to be completely blunt. Mm. Um, there's just not a lot of VCs out there to compete against, but there was US-based VCs. There was the real competition. Mm. And uh, let's just say that we waved the Canadian flag very violently in front of their faces. And, and but it was really true. And, you know, I remember the, the discussion with Toby uh, we were having coffee. It was supposed to be a 30-minute coffee, and then I think it turned into a two-and-a-half-hour coffee. We didn't even talk about Shopify. We talked about changing Canada. We talked about why this is our home, and this is where we're going to live, and die, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, basically said to him, uh, you know, I'm not going anywhere. If you falter, we'll continue to back you. We'll be there. Uh, you have my word, and and Toby took great risk in saying yes to us because he had Bessemer already behind him, which had a very big stake. And Bessemer already had contacted some of the you know truly great U.S. firms, and I believe, if uh, memory serves, we had a twenty-one day close period, which was super uh, fast. Yeah, and. I want to say seven days into it, they received a term sheet uh, from uh, Sequoia. Yeah. And uh, they were not in any obligation really to continue on because we it was everything was going so fast. And all that Toby said to me is, John, I am under serious pressure. You guys better deliver in 21 days or I'm going to have to go and seek the capital in the U.S. because Bessemer is killing them. And Bessemer didn't have anything against us, but you know, the U.S. club, you know, they're clubby over there, and they were just Perfect. trying to give a good one to one of their uh, their close buddies. And, you know, the funniest part of the story was, so I used to uh, go in the Valley every three months or so, and I'd make my rounds and go to, you know, the injuries and Sequoia's excels and stuff. And I did that every year, four times. And you keep on doing that, and then they really get to know you. Perfect. Well, uh Sequoia, I would go to uh, the managing partner who just retired, and I'm just forgetting his name now. He just retired a year ago. Yeah. Uh, tremendous guy. So I, I met with him two or three times, and every time I met with him, he'd always say, hey, this is very, very nice to meet you. And I was like, anyway, I met you. Like I, 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 you know, six months ago, and you keep on forgetting. But he did it to me three times, and I, I didn't say a word. And I get it, you know, who the hell am I, right? And then, remember, I knew that so Sequoia did the term sheet, and then we closed it. We actually closed it a few days earlier, and this was Jim Orlando was leading the deal, and Jim just did an unbelievable job on it, and he frantically had to kill himself to get it done and he even beat the deadline and then the and we had to get the news out quickly because it was leaking out and don't i get a call from the managing partner of sequoia and he john it jesus i'm again forgetting his name now um i'd wanting you next one got to do it the together it was the only time we remembered my name and actually called me up and I'm sure what happened, he saw the news and he probably said, what the f <laughs> a pension fund in Canada beat out us? What the hell was going on here, right? And 
And so we knew that we were never going to beat anybody, particularly in the U.S., based on resources, brain power, track record, or anything like that. But we did, you know, we 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 thought, you know, we had good folks and and trusted folks, and you know, we tried to add as much value as we thought that you know the entrepreneurs you know really wanted. But at the end of the day, uh, that capital source, that trusted capital source in Canada. Uh, where it's built on relationship and not so transactional as in as it is in the United States was a key reason why we thereafter Shopify. I can't recall. I'm sure it happened, but I don't remember losing entire term sheet for the remaining eight years that I was there. That's awesome. I mean, I I just want to reflect on the importance of how you helped. Um... You know, the whole industry in Canada actually crossed, crossed, crossed the chasm, I'll just say, in terms of being able to stay in Canada. Because, I mean, I, I, I interview a lot of the companies um, who are Canadian companies, but they, they were forced. Like, pre-2012, they were forced to go down. Like, they didn't yeah. really have a choice. Like, you mean, look at Grandma. Didn't have a choice. You know, they were yeah. originally founded in Toronto, but that was part of the deal, is they had yep. to go down there. But I do think, you know, just like what you said about that conversation with Toby, giving that option of saying, hey, let's grow it. And not even, like... A and B, and then you go down to the valley and let them IP it up. But we want to go all the way to you know Delta and Echo with you, and really get, capture the yep. value locally. And before yep. that, that was not an option at all. No, it was not an option, and that's why you know the Omer's platform and opportunity was so critical, and why it was really the inflection um, in, in the industry because you know it was still the first. Fun, you know. It, again, it was it was only 180 million. It, it ended up becoming uh, uh, 220 million, uh, uh, but it was still relatively small. But the story was, yeah. But at the time, we were a 70 billion dollar pension fund, so right. I was able to say, "You're backed by 70 billion dollars." Right. Yeah, I know it's only a 220 million dollar allocation, but that was enough to say to folks, "Don't mess with us." Uh, number one, number two, we've got a lot of other assets that could be customers, resources, et cetera, which was a great advantage that no VC firm had. Oh, that's that's super interesting. Well, was there ever a time where a fund, like, I mean, you look at like the SoftBank and, you know, what, what, the, what was it called? Uh, I can't think of the fund's name, but it's just like the monster fund, basically, that they had Tiger and Coke, you mean? Like, yeah. Is, that, is there ever a fund that's just too big? Because you just can't, you know, you just, it's watered down at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting question. It really depends on what you want to be. So, uh, and you have to make a decision: Are you going to be an investment fund, or are you going to be an asset manager? Right. And an asset manager is really a scale game, and you know you you really try to uh, you know provide an alternative to you investing in the public markets. And you'll get a good solid return, um, but but you know you're not going to shoot the lights out because it's, it becomes increasingly difficult to find companies that are always above the hurdle rate. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, you are seeing this, right? You're seeing the Andreessen's, the Sequoias that are really at this big asset management side. It's not it's not a a negative it that's not a criticism it's they're grabbing a certain type of the market and then at the other end you've got these boutiques like 
a union square ventures that basically doesn't do a fund size greater than 200 because they run the math and their performance is just off the charts and those are the boutiques and the problem that's becoming is that if you're somewhere in the middle you're kind of squeezed on both sides and so it's that middle part that you really got to figure out what your niche is in that middle because if you're just a general investor, a good athlete one, you're just doing A and B investing very, very hard. Uh, you're neither going to be an asset manager nor are you going to be <laughs> a, you know, a great investor from a returns perspective. So I think that the market, the, the market is getting uh, very challenging. Now, the only thing I will say is uh, some of those that really started aggressively in the asset management game have, uh, that were uh, singular focused like a Tiger, Kochu, or SoftBank have completely imploded. And it, I think it's caused people to pause and say, wait a minute, maybe, maybe gathering assets for asset gathering sake is perhaps not the best path to longevity. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's 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 interesting. Well, what what? I mean, just a simple question here: What makes Canada such a good place to do business? So, well, um, you know, in Canada, you got to pick your spots. Number one, uh, I mean, we obviously don't have the same volume of opportunities as there are in the United States, but you know, there's really no differentiation in quality, in my view. It's just a big differential in in the numbers. So, uh. You know, there used to be this report, it's it's dated now, so I wonder what it'll be like now, but there was this thing saying that every year there's 15 vintage companies um, that would become a unicorn in the United States. This was done around 2015. And so if you wanted to be that top firm, you would have to get one of those 15, which means 15 firms were grabbing 60, 70% of all the returns in the market. Using the same 10 to 1 ratio that we use, that means that if you're in Florida, there's one company, maybe what I have, a one company per vintage year. You got to get the one. So you've got to, it's, it's hard to be the one who picked the one. And that's the challenge here in Canada, but, but I can tell you one of the biggest differentiators that it works for and against you is Canada um, does business based on relationships, Earth. largely in the U.S. does it based on transactional value. So, for example, if you are a, if you're a, a, a VC firm and you want to raise capital, it takes you so much longer to raise capital from Canadian-based institutions where U.S. ones, if they like you, bang, it's fast. But if something goes wrong, and invariably it does, <laughs> there is way less mercy in the United States because, again, it's transactional value. <laughs> Whereas Canadians, we tend to say, look, We've got our relationship. They figured out they made the mistake. Let's carry on. And, you know, a big example of that was, you know, when when I was gearing up ready to 
start the closing for for um, um, our fund. Um, and then I got run over by a tractor trailer and every single one of the investors, everyone waited four months for me to get out of hospital. And then they just continued. And three months later, the fund was closed. I'm not sure that would happen in the United States. And again, it's not a callous thing. And I, I would have understood it. They would have just said, Hey dude, I am really sorry to happen to you, but you know, we got to carry on our business. But in Canada, they said that they were going to invest and they did. And this is why I love our country. And yes, it's painful and yes, it's slower, but man, it's a, it's such a great place to be. And that same ethos is the way that I feel in our companies. Hey, like we're going to be very tough on you and now hold you accountable. But if things happen that are not within your control, we're not going to just dump you, um, you know, unless you do something that's, you know, uh, that breaches our trust. We're mm -hmm. there. We're there to back you. We're in it for the long haul. Things happen, and you carry on. And that every single company that I've backed, which is now I don't even know fifty, sixty, seventy companies, uh, every one but one has had serious drawbacks. And you just kind of go around and you just keep on going on. So I expect you know, big problems to occur on every investment that we make. I, I really, you know, I wasn't expecting that answer, to be honest, about why, you know, doing business in Canada is good. And I really love that because I think, you know, at the end of the day, people do matter, um, like yes. very, very much matter. I mean, you know, transactional is, is black and white, whereas the world is not quite that in my mind. And on top of that, if, if it was so transactional that, hey, it failed right away and we're never going to do this, we'd never have anything actually evolve here. It would just be a would, everything would just be vacuumed right back down to the states. So I'm 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 really pleased by that answer. Well, here's a question because I get this question a lot: is what is the best way for an investor for someone to get in front of an investor like you? Is there is there a secret code? Is it like being introduced through someone else? Is it just hey, this is you know something I've heard about? What what what's the best way? Uh, the best way is to reach out. We respond to 100 percent of the inbounds that come in, and if we don't respond uh i want to know about it because everyone deserves a response um you know we have the contractual obligation inside the firm that every response needs to happen within 48 hours i know it's not perfect on that but that's what our goal is and we get high volume but everyone deserves it whether it's an employee perspective employee uh but i get lots on linkedin uh, on our website there's a path to go in there i mean certainly if it's a warm introduction that has been you know pre-screened in a way uh that that's a lot better only that uh it will get uh a higher or, or a more rapid level of attention if it says hey this guy has looked at it or somebody says I've looked at it. I like it. It's just not for me, but this feels like it's perfect for you. It, it, it helps us, but ultimately we don't triage differently based on it coming in cold or not. We still, we look at all of them yeah. and, uh, you know, and, you know, I'd say the big lesson would be, uh, if you could don't, try to just simply send something in and expect we're going to cut a check 
let's go back to the relationship side of things, mm -hmm. right? The best time to connect with us is T minus at least one year. Mm -hmm. Let us meet you. Come on in. Show us what you got. Tell us what you're thinking. And we'll put you on the radar screen. We have a tracking list that we will then put you on. And then you get a quarterly, we can do a quarterly update. And you know what? It's the best way to say, okay, you're going to say, you're going to tell me you're going to do this. Okay. Let's wait a quarter and let's see what you did. And then, wow, you said what you did. That's huge. Let's go to the next quarter. And now by the time you're really ready to raise, Perfect. we're already going, Jesus, these people know how to execute. So I just hope that people think of that more of build that relationship first, if you can. And mm -hmm. when you have the real last, you know, ideally it's a year or later. Well, I think, I think that's really interesting. And I really applaud, you know, the, the approach of, you know, making sure that everyone does get a re response from that. Um, I, I would, I would just, you know, suggest one thing though. It looks like, you know, you're, you're doing a, a you know, looking at things from a year out and everything, but I would just suggest one thing for, for our listeners is also trying to understand the philosophy or the investment philosophy of the firm. Because if you're going after someone who's going after like D and E, you know, you're, you're wasting right. your time if you're pre-seed. So, you know, as, 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 as nice as that is, and maybe they can yes. do an introduction, but, but recognize the stage of where you yes. are and the stage of where the firm is before you start, you know, knocking on too many doors. Yeah. You know, though, I, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's T minus five years, you know, I'd say, you know what, it's just way, way too early for us. But if you're at $10 million, for example, or you have five and you're, you, you're hitting an inflection. Yeah. Like, let, let's take a look at this. Uh, you know, our first investment was far more, far lesser than a hundred million. It was, you know, it mm -hmm. was just barely into double digits, but it was on an inflection curve where it was doubling. Um, so, you know, and I'd say to you, our ideal spots are companies that are between 10 and a hundred million in revenue. Um, EBITDA flattish, or at least within the next 12 months, I can see that the EBITDA will at least be flat. We're trying to get past product market fit. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we're trying to get, you know, 15, 20% um, uh, equity on average. You know, we'd go as high as 40 if we, you know, if we came in earlier. But, but I'd say right now, on average, we're at about 20, you know, give, yeah. give or, you know, plus or minus 5%. So if you run the math there, that implies, um, you know, and we cut checks of seventy-five to hundred million dollars. So it implies, you know, an enterprise value of you know, hundred to five hundred million or thereabouts. Yeah, this is not a junior startup. This is <laughs> this no, case. no, no, no. This is where the hole is in Canada. And then I realized so I was trying to plug a hole. Otherwise, okay. the next uh, type of organization past us is buyout private equity. And uh -huh. that's not a growth opportunity or you go public and we've already seen the disasters that happen there. So we're really trying to be that capital that allows you to remain in this country. Uh, and I think that's awesome. Well, you sit on the boards of many important organizations. So I just straight question here is what makes someone so a successful board member? Like what, 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 why is it important or what's the skill that's important in order to be a good board member? Well, I think of being a good board member is first of all taking off your your own personal agenda if you have one, and to really think of what's best for the company. 
And a good board member is someone who has their nose in but hands off. They're not there to show the CEO how you would do it if you were running the business. But you're there to help direct. You're there, you know, to provide support where they're needed. But in a lot of cases, um, they just don't know. And you're th- you're there to use your significant influence skills, and you're trying to debate opportunities or issues, and may the better decision win it, not your ego. So check your ego at the door. And I think that's what makes, you know, excellent board members. Um, you know, when they do that, they don't need to speak uh, unless they really have to. Um, and again, you don't want to be intrusive. You know, the entrepreneur's job is just brutal as it is. Like, you really just don't need board members asking for various reports and information that they could not possibly produce and it has it's not even involved in the operating of the business but you're doing it because you're trying to satisfy some other obligation you have like like a lot of those things are nonsense and and but but at the same time you're not there to be a cheerleader either Uh and you know if if management is not doing what they set out do your job is to act on behalf of shareholders and sometimes it's it's very rough and um you can't be a coward about it either and i've seen both extremes where people are being way too ruthless for no reason and i see people being just sitting on the sidelines saying nothing but always just saying patting on the back because they want to be the you know they want to be the friend and but not really add any sort of value you know what like be a friend do i take them out for a beer but don't become the board if that's what you think the role of a board is supposed to be yeah no i think i think that makes sense i mean evolution happens i mean you know, or look at look at the conflictual uh, conflicting networks of how ai works you know it's basically arguing with itself in order to make it ev- evolve stronger i mean you have to at least have that 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 ability to 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 push back to force you know and not make yeah give make work is, is it different if you're like you're on the boards of like Dave Suzuki and these great organizations yeah. like that? Is there a different skill set needed for that, or is it pretty much the same? It, it it's I think it's all it's all the same. Now, when you're on not for profit boards, you just and this is I would say is where I get I have to be more careful in forgetting that you know a lot of the folks who are on those organizations are not business folks. They you take for granted that they should know business matters. They they, you know, are subject matter areas, frankly, of areas that I have no clue about. And so they know lots more things that I don't know. And what always surprises me being on a not for profit board, if I say something that I just think is obvious, like, wow, I never thought about it. You know, your first uh reaction is like, really? You didn't know that you're going to go, oh, geez, like, you know, what are you doing, John? Like, uh, that's not their job to, you know, they're not on Bay Street, uh, <laughs> uh, but they're trying to save the planet. Uh, so take it easy. And so sometimes I catch myself being a little, uh, um, you know, 
forgetting who my audience is, but the actual things that you do do has to be all the same. No, I think I think that's true. I think that's true. And we need to you need to push you need to push the I'm I'm gonna you use quote to quote the hippies in the world that are trying to improve the world because we need them. <laughs> we need yeah. them to do oh, what they we do. We desperately do. No, I like this is why I'm so involved in the not for profit sector because it also uh keeps my feet, you know, literally on the ground, uh, because you sometimes forget uh mm-hmm. that these are the folks that are really trying to make life good for everyone. No, oh, completely, completely. Well, you know, one thing that, that that really tickled me is to see how many times you've been honored in many ways, including you were, you were named as Canada's number one most powerful business person for outstanding progress that was and a, achievement. That was a bad year. Yeah, that that's, was a bad year against. <laughs> that's incredible. That's incredible. But also uh, outstanding progress and achievement from the Schulich uh, School of Business at York University. I assume, yep. you know, you're yep. all of my matter. I went there. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But this is the one that, that tickles me because this is one I think is wonderful is you were also awarded the Order of Merit of the Italian Re- Republic as a fifth-class yep. knight. What yes. does that mean, and do you own a castle? Uh, no, and I don't even own a villa or... Uh, but, no, I'm I'm knighted in Italy. So uh, so my, my parents are uh, off-the-boat Italians, and they award... So it largely goes to... Italian uh, citizens, residents, but what they'll do is that they award it, uh, not, not as many to the Italian uh, diaspora around the world. And uh, I was awarded a few years ago. And so, what you're called is the Cavalieri. Uh, and so, instead of Sir, after my name goes C A V, period, which Cavallo is a horse in Italian, so mm-hmm. it's it's the it's the term for knight, and uh, and it's the uh, I was awarded by the president of Italy. Amazing, amazing. That's I, I think that's so cool. I think that's so cool. Well, well, although, John, uh, although when I when I asked when I asked my mother what is that, she said uh, uh, I have no idea. But why would they give it to you? And I was like, so, thank, thank, well, I was wondering um, the same. But I was wondering the same thing. But Jesus, it just sounds. So much worse when it comes from you. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe she didn't put you in a, what, a sword fighting class or any yeah, of these exactly. things. But, you know, you, exactly. you, 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 have, you have a future in that, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, the theme of the Afternoon Tea Podcast is to talk to wonderful founders or, uh, you know, people in the in the industry such as yourself in order to prepare that next generation. So I always have these two questions that I ask at the end of, at the, end of the show. Um, so the first one, John, is can you please share one piece of advice to help a younger Canadian founder? Yeah, you know, the the one piece of advice is really around persistence and resiliency. Uh, if you are uh, trying to build a business, you just got to make sure it's something that you're really passionate about. And would you do it for for no money? Like, is it something, is there a problem that you're really trying to solve? Because the issue is going to be 99% of the time, a rock is going to drop right in front of you, and sometimes it lands right on you. And mm-hmm. you really are going to have to have the persistence and resiliency to pivot around that rock. And when it's something that you ultimately don't care about, really, but you were chasing the dollars, then you're going to just say, well, forget about it. Let right. me chase something else. So I would say that is the biggest issue or opportunity you know, that I fight for the, for the young folks. 
Uh, I think I think that's so important. I mean, when I founded uh, my, my current company, I didn't even pay myself for the first two years. And you, you ask around, right. and that's pretty common, you know, that you've right, got to right. build and you got to pay those who, who want to be there and, uh, and keep yeah. it going. So I think I think that's I think that's awesome advice. Well, last question, and I can let you go on in your busy day. Um, but can you share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you personally look up to? I mean, there there, there are so many of them, but uh, you know, somebody who I just find it just you know he's both unusual but brilliant, uh, humble, and maybe the smartest person I've ever dealt with. Uh, and many people don't know his name, but his name is Mark Leonard, and he is the founder and CEO of Constellation Software, mm-hmm. which, you know, I don't even know what the market cap is, maybe about $30, $40 billion or thereabouts. And uh, uh, there's no photographs of the individual. He doesn't want to be, doesn't do interviews, doesn't get photographed. He keeps his head down. Um, but his strategy on how he built this business when i first met him was about 1997 i think and i was one of his advisors and the company might have been 50 million in revenue and he told me exactly what the strategy was and the strategy is the same damn strategy numbers are bigger and the company is bigger um but uh you know, when I was watching him and just seeing, you know, in the face of adversity or what others are doing, and he was doing something that was very non-sexy in technology, and it didn't bother him one iota. So when I was telling you at the beginning of this podcast, how hard it is to be contrarian, that was the first contrarian guy that I've ever met. And and he's still doing it 25 years later. So uh, he's just unbelievable. Awesome. Awesome. I like hearing about all these Canadian Mavericks, including your, <laughs> including yourself, John. He's a Maverick. He's a, he's a Maverick and a half. <laughs> Maverick and a half. And I'm, I'm just a goose. So, yeah. John, <laughs> wait, thanks so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. I learned so much. And uh, keep, keep doing great stuff in Canada and great. making us all better. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you liked this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T. That is three T's dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at TTT underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.